Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Takeshi Morisato. Today, I'll be talking to Gracia Liu Farel, who is the author of Immigration, who is the author of Immigrant Japan, Mobility and Belonging in an Ethno-Nationalist Society, a book that was just published in 2020 by Cornell University Press. Hello, Gracia. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are so excited to talk to you about your new book on Japanese society and especially your insight into the reality of immigration in Japan. But before getting into it, I'd like to start with a question about you. Could you introduce yourself by telling us about your career, research, and also how you came to be involved with this field of sociology and Japanese studies? Okay, sure. Um, I'm a sociologist who studies migration um, particularly uh, immigration into Japan. And I think uh, I, I study uh, migration because I have uh, I am a migrant and I have been a migrant most of my life. So I, I grew up in China and uh, went to the U.S. for graduate school. And then um, because of family reasons, um, actually because my husband uh, found a job in Japan, so we went to Japan. That was um, in late 1990s. And so it was in Japan that I started to think about what I could do for my dissertation. Um, so at that time, um, there was a rapid uh, increase of Chinese uh, migrants in Japan, but um, I didn't see much of literature about uh, Chinese immigrants in Japan in English. And there, there wasn't that much sort of uh, uh, literature about uh, immigration into Japan or my, uh, you know, migrants in Japan. So I felt that could be a field that I could get into. And I was really curious um, about uh, the Chinese migrants in Japan. So that, that was how I started uh, my research about migrants in Japan. And so I, I, I went back to Chicago. I uh, went back to Chicago to continue my uh, uh, doctoral program. And I also started my research. Um, yeah. And I did my field work in Japan. So I, you know, I actually spent most of my graduate school um, in Japan doing field research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the is this the sort of a beginning of the the book, this book that you, you published, uh, the Immigrant Japan, that's the basis of, um, um, so you, you, your dissertation work was the basis of the origination of this work. It certainly was a departure point because, you know, mm. I, and I, I am Chinese, Japanese, I would say. I grew up in China. So, um, and I, I was a Chinese migrant to the United States first, and then I came to Japan. So I, I was Chinese migrants to Japan, but I, yeah. Um, so, um, um, I started uh, 
with the Chinese migrants in Japan, and that was for my dissertation. But later on, after I uh, you know settled in Japan, I started teaching Japan and and doing more research in Japan. I wanted to expand the um, you know the population. There are different kinds of immigrant groups in Japan. So yeah, I mean Chinese uh, migration and Chinese migrants uh, were the beginning, and I have continued. And so the book, yeah, in a sense, was uh, you know a kind of conclusion of my past two decades work, uh, starting from Chinese migrants, and but then continued with other uh, migrant populations. Mm-hmm. So it's very. Um... So from late 90s that you started to work on this book and so that's the basis in which you started to expand and then that's the conclusion of the whole research. Mm-hmm. Really fascinating. I actually it's 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 it, I we can feel the intense field work behind this book but also when you read it you can read it as if almost listening to a stories of different migrants uh, in Japan. But the, your book tells us that there are 2.6 million immigrants in Japan. And, and I, I understand that this is excluding naturalized citizens. Um, can you tell us about this number? How does it compare to other countries? And is, is there a peculiar pattern, uh, if anything, about the number in Japan? Well, the number is low. <laughs> so the foreign resident uh, population is still uh, a small in Japan compared to almost all other uh, developed countries, uh, OECD countries. Um, and uh, so the Jap- Japanese population right now is about uh, 126 million. Um, so the uh, the immigrant population is less than um, you know three percent. And actually, the by the end of two thousand nineteen, the, the immigrant population, the re- foreign resident population, has re- had reached uh, almost three million. Uh, not not including yeah naturalized. So the number actually increased quite fast. So there are several um, characteristics. First of all, is uh, uh, comparatively small. In terms of percentage, because uh, so, for example, um, Germany and the UK all have over twelve percent foreign residents, and um, um, so in Japan that's very low. Um, but but the, the 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 other characteristic is that, um, and it has increased quite uh, rapidly um, in the three decades of the Heisei era that we just finished the Heisei era. So from, say, late uh, 1980s to um, 2019, there's almost like a few um, tripled the foreign population from less than 1 million foreign residents to nearly 3 million. So that was a, a significant increase. And also the composition of uh, the kind of immigrant population in Japan um, has also changed. Uh, you know, when the Heisei era uh, began, um, it was mostly the old-comer Korean uh, residents, the kind of uh, uh, the colonial subjects and their family members, or the descendants who stayed in Japan after World War II. So those were, you know, uh, three-quarter three quarters of uh, the foreign resident population in the late 1980s. But right now, I think that group of people is um, are less than 20%, like 16% or so. So the most of people came after 1990. So I think Japan, yeah, Japanese uh, foreign resident population um, is very 
um, you know, recent and very actually uh, new. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's small number, but it's increasing rapidly. Very, very quickly. Yeah. And it's going to increase even more rapidly. I mean, right now, of course, everything and the mobility is a bit kind of frozen um, because of the COVID pandemic. But uh, before before this, and also, I I am confident to say after this, the the, the increase is going to be very fast because Japan um, is the oldest society in the world and has uh, over twenty eight percent of um, um, uh, population older than sixty five already, and then the the agent the, the agent uh, um, the, the population agent is very rapid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was the uh, some of the questions that I had with regard to your book. Uh, so you are actually invited by the government, Ministry of Justice, to actually give a commentary uh, about the uh, na- national policy of, um, I think there are two terms that I remember, Anshin Anzen and Kojo Ryozoku. You know, the Ministry of Government, uh, Ministry of Justice in Japan wanted to sort of promote peace and some sort of... Um, safe environment for citizens of Japan to live. And you actually gave um, comments on sort of, um, you know, as a specialist of immigration in Japan, uh, you gave a commentary to uh, Japanese government. But what I was interested in this comments, because you say that the Japanese society as aging society would need immigration population to uh, keep the economic costs. Let's say if they want to keep the, you know, economic industry and economic infrastructure as is, we would necessarily need labor force that coming up from outside Japan. But it seems like the Japanese government is really against that. Do you have any anything more to say about this strange, you know, conflict between government interest and economic prosperity whilst we have facing this necessity to bring more uh, the help from the uh, immigration. Um, this is a, a dilemma that has always been there. And Japanese government, f- from very beginning, you know, um, in, uh, resisted immigration. Um, so, I mean, I'm talking about post-war era. So, very um, early on, especially you know, um, in the immediate immediate decades right after the, the World War II, Japan had a lot of um, returned, you know, military uh, people and soldiers, and also in rural uh, labor they could tap into. Um, so, Japan did not need a lot of foreign labor, and actually, by the end of 1960s, Japan already needed. Uh, already started feeling, um, you know, labor shortage. Uh, that was a time. Remember, um, Tagesh, in, in Europe, there were a lot of guest worker programs, right? In Germany, in, in France, um, in uh, Switzerland, and the, the labor shortage before the oil shock in the nineteen sixties. There are a lot of um, guest worker programs, but Japan did not want to have that. <laughs> um, but um, I think, um, luckily, in a, in a sense, I mean, I'm talking quote unquote. Luckily, there was an oil shock, so the economy kind of, you know, the froze and, uh, and also went went into recession for for some time. So that oil shock actually saved Japan from uh, becoming a, a labor import country, you know, from let's say late 1960s and early 1970s. And and so you know Japan actually had a had a period of time they could still uh, rely on their um, 
uh, national population, but that uh, possibility became, um, you know, it, it ran out basically 1980s, um, especially when Japan uh, entered Heisei era when the economy was booming. There's such a severe uh, labor shortage. So the business world had always wanted the government to uh, start importing uh, uh, labor, but uh, the you know government did not want to do it. There are several reasons, right? There one reason is that they looked at Europe. Okay, the guest worker program did not look that attractive to Japan because they fell. Um, there, there were many problems, social problems that uh, you know um, brought by guest worker problems, uh, guest worker programs, especially um, you know after uh, during oil shock and then when there's economic recession, there's also surplus labor and then there was unemployment and also in, in case of Germany, they brought uh, over family members and and uh, so. Uh, in eyes of Japanese uh, bureaucrats, that was not uh, a good example. And so they, they were uh, wary about uh, this sort of a guest worker program. But at the same time, you know, the business world really wanted wanted labor. So what they started doing is this, they, they said, okay, we, Japan, you know, Nakasone at that time uh, wanted to internationalize Japan because Japan became economically powerful. So if we want to internationalize Japan, then we probably want want to bring in all those highly skilled people and also students, you know, international students. So, so you know, J- Japan decided that they could bring in um, skilled workers. So Japan's the first um, uh, major immigration reform you know, um, was in 1990. So the, the the reform, the, the immigration, um, immigration control and refugee recognition act was revised in 1989 and in act uh, and and began in 1990. So 1990 was a very important year that Japan started to import a lot of uh, labor, um, you know, skilled workers, um, as well as um, 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 have start having this pro uh, this uh, visa called the long term residence, which was used to bring back the ethnic Japanese Brazilians and Peruvians, Latin American. So uh, what Japanese call you know Nikkei uh, Nikkei people. Um, so the reason why they created that kind of um, um, long term resident uh, uh, visa to it was. They, they were thinking, oh, okay, many advanced countries want to bring back their ethnic, you know, co-ethnics back to their uh, country. For example, Germany had that kind of program. So if some ethnic Japanese wanted to come to come back to Japan, then we certainly have this channel. But very soon they discovered that this, this was a major labor source. <laughs> So they started using this long-term resident uh, visa to bring in manual labor, basically, from uh, Latin America. So what I think I'm a little bit kind of uh, veering away from your, your question. What I wanted to say is Japan is, um, is always you know, facing this kind of dilemma. They, they need labor, but they don't want to have so-called immigration, um, partly uh, because um, the you know, their um, reference to Europe. On the other hand, they also, as in my book, I kind of emphasize is this uh, ethno-national identity that 
somehow Japanese people share a common descent. So only like of the Japanese origin are Japanese. So Japan, Japanese society relies on this kind of ethno-nationalism to, to be strong. And, and also by, uh, you know, it's, so the, um, um, the, the derivative of that is that people who are from outside are natural threat to, you know, Japanese nation. So this is, you know, this kind of public order and, um, Social security kind of concern is related to this kind of xenophobic, you know, uh, uh, framework. Thinking that from outside are fairly uh, threatening to Japanese uh, uh, public order and the social security. Mm-hmm. So that's that's precisely the, the the kind of question that I wanted to ask you about this concept of ethno-nationalism. So there are you know two concepts of uh, important concepts in your book: the ethno-nationalism. And immigration or migration, um, you know, they seem to play an important role in understanding your book. But are they just so? You know, the title of the book is the same: uh, immigrant Japan, and then immigration and ethno-nationalistic state of Japan or country of Japan. Um, so there are contradiction between the, the, the um, among, between these two terms. Would you agree that that this is the polar opposite that can never be um, sort of reconciled. So you can't hold on to this nationalism and then talk about migration or is there any way for the Japanese citizens, for instance, to reconcile these two terms or they're just really against each other? Um, Right. Um, In the kind of uh, identity level, you know, ideological level, ethno nationalism basically you think you know you have to be a descendant of Japanese in order to qualify to be a member of Japanese state right so, um, so if you're not if you came from outside if your parents are not Japanese then somehow you, you cannot be part of this uh, Japanese nation so I think um, there, there at that level you might see the contradiction at the identity ideological level that's actually the dilemma that Japanese government bureaucrats or some of the political elites are facing. So how should we define Japan and Japanese? And so that, that's the reason and the immigration has been a kind of taboo word <laughs> in political discourse. So Abe, you know, recently um, in Japan started importing uh, manual labor. They passed this um, uh, revision reform act uh, late 2018 to allow um, it's like construction workers, agricultural workers to come in. This is the first time in the post-war period they, they, they are doing this. But at the same time, the Abe just came out and said, no, that's not an immigration program. Don't, don't mix it. Um, this is a not a, you know, it's not an immigration policy. And a lot of LDP uh, politicians are also kind of uh, saying, oh, we're just borrowing labor. We're not uh, turning into country. So I think at sort of political discourse level, yes, you see that kind of uh, um, a dilemma, this is a conflict. But at a, at a pragmatic level, you know, and then practically people are immigrating into Japan, and I'm immigrant. You know, I'm naturalized uh, immigrant. I think that I, I start my book talking about my naturalization process. <laughs> and, um, and, and surprisingly, are- it's quite the... Um- how should I say, very bureaucratic. It's not it is, right? you know, embracing the flag and becoming a part of the family. It's very procedural. Yeah. I was also 
very very surprised. I was because I, I, um, I never I have never been to any other <laughs> naturalization ceremony or anything. I've I was imagining you have like a pledge uh, allegiance or something right in the United States, and I didn't see even a flag in the room. There's only a whiteboard, and everything was so bureaucratic. And I you know I yes, it was a very uh, bureaucratic. Mm-hmm. Um, that, it's almost like a, you know trying to get the driver's license renew or something <laughs> very neutral experience that it's almost like a surreal process that you have this myth of ethnonationalism that you know making this huge bubble of some sort of ethnic nationalistic unity on the one hand but then immigration process that enables you to enter that circle doesn't have any um you know, the color that we actually put into this concept of ethnonationalism. Right. It seems. Yeah. Right. I, I think that ceremony, on the one hand, I feel like it's, it's very administrative. So subdued, mm-hmm. right? Okay, now you are legally a Japanese citizen. You are allowed to have a Japanese passport. You will be protected by the Jap- Japanese state. At the same time, there's no ceremony. It's not a ceremony. Oh, you, I, we celebrate that you are become one of us, that kind of feeling. Right. So I am ambivalent about, you know, ceremonial thing, but uh, at the same time, I feel like it's a little bit maybe, does it really imply that does it in a sense imply that uh, they want to kind of uh, tune this down to something that's really uh, administrative? Right. Yeah. I wonder, maybe, you know, I really wonder this uh, ethnonationalism, maybe it's, it's, a, it's a kind of... Um, process in which well this is a question that i have to you that this this sort of binary division of ethnonationalism and immigration did did it cause any challenge to your research at any stage like a proposal level or process of explaining how important to talk about immigration in japan because of this ethnonationalism not not as a researcher not as um, you know mm-hmm. um, in fact one of my and you know this project itself has been supported by several grants given by a japanese government so um and one of the um, uh, research grants um, was titled is japan an immigrant country and I always try to kind of figure this out. So, at a, you know, as a researcher, I never ran into this sort of uh, kind of uh, barrier that somehow we reject this kind of research. Now, actually, people really encourage you to do this research. So, because on the ground level, immigration is taking place, and Japanese government understands it. So, and uh, and legally. There are viable passes to immigration, and in fact, if you're highly skilled labor, your your immigration process is expedited. You're like you're on the priority pass to permanent residency. So there is this kind of political discourse that rejects immigration, and there's also this a practical and a legal kind of uh, um, level of accepting um, immigration. So this sort of kind of disjuncture and exists. Uh, you know, in Japan, that's why I I, I call this uh, country uh, as nationalist immigrant country, and um, so it, on the one hand they in, they still adhere to this ethno-nationalist identity. At the same time, they actually have immigration. Just that they just don't call it immigration. 
Yeah, so I, I actually, on a practical level, I don't see any contradiction. And in fact, and, and this is something I want to argue, um, you know, when I, when I say, oh, Japan's immigrant country, sometimes some even colleagues, right, some sort of scientists who do this sort of uh, migration research or even do Japan uh, research will question this. Oh, but, you know, you can't really call Japan immigrant uh, immigrant immigration country because it doesn't have this sort of... Uh, um, you know, kind of uh, framework for immigration. But I, I, I said, you know, but we have millions of immigrants. If we do not call Japan an immigrant society, what are they? If as researchers, we do not, you know, uh, present these people's, you know, kind of existence and, and uh, propose that we should uh, change our mindset and call Japan an immigrant country, you are basically um, denying the existence of millions of people who are immigrants here. And I think that's the reason why I kind of want to put Immigrant Japan as a title, because this is, uh, for me, it's a very personal and it's very, um, I feel passionately about this. Um, you really want to present this this image of Japan, that Japan does have immigration and Japan has immigrants and they have very interesting stories um, to tell and they're very much part of Japanese society. Mm -hmm. Can you, so I I have a follow-up question on this uh, issue because first of all, this concept of ethno-nationalism is rather vague or difficult to understand, especially if if, um, readers are not from Japan or never lived in Japan. Uh So maybe first question is, how how would you define the uh, ethno-nationalism, but the this sort of a concept of ethno-nationalism as the opposition to the immigration, uh, and I, I, I take it that your colleagues are believing in this Japan as not uh, immigrant countries because of this ethno-nationalism, but it seems like your book tells us about the stories of immigrants. Um, many of them are actually quite positive. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on like your actual field research from um, conversation with the, your, uh, your your conversation with immigrants and how that sort of um, you know uh, puts this sort of pressure against this ethno-nationalistic image of Japan. Mm. I well, uh, first of all, this ethno-nationalism mm-hmm. essentially um, um, is is a, is a, I think a um, a concept that. Um, you basically superimpose nationalism onto ethnicity, mm-hmm. right? So you, this the country is formed by this ethnic group, and yeah. uh, and Japan, you know, has kind of shared this uh, story. Somehow we have this common descent, and blah blah blah. And um, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> <laughs> right. It's very vague, and then we don't really know what to do with it. That's why, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it was, you know, um, I think it, it, you 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 also um, know this um, in the post-war Japan, and I think the sort of uh, ethno-nationalist uh, image of Japan uh, was promoted, and especially because Japan Jap- Japanese economy became so strong and so fast, and so people were proud, you know, because we're ethno-nationalists, we're homogeneous. Basically, in Japan, that's a very a common kind of. Uh, um, uh, understanding, a self-understanding that somehow Jap- Jap- Japan, Japanese society is uh, homogeneous. You know, we don't have different kind of uh, ethnic groups, and because this homogeneousness, 
you know, we somehow we can all kind of share a lot of uh, a common culture, and we can we can do this as a one nation and uh, and uh, and achieve this sort of miracle. So this kind of post-war um, uh, discourse was quite popular, and it was promoted also by Japanese business, by Japanese government, and. Uh, is deeply entrenched in both the Japanese people's mind and also uh, foreigners. You know, when I I remember when I first started doing immigration research in Japan, one of my um, uh, actually uh, professors in the United States said, "Oh, immigration! Is there an immigration in Japan?" <laughs> and for a lot of uh, foreigners, they they I think Japan still is uh, somehow homogeneous and very unique country. And that actually, that kind of uh, mindset, that kind of uh, impression of Japan is is even shared by immigrants themselves. So on the one hand, there are immigrants living in Japan at the same time they buy into this sort of ethno-nationalist discourse of somehow Japan you know, is this this kind of nation and has a very different culture. and, And at the same time, they might be exclusive um, and so foreigners cannot be part of Japanese nation. And uh, so we are just here as foreigners. And um, at the same time, it does not make their life miserable. At the identification level, it's hard for them uh, to think of themselves somehow as, uh, as part of Japanese nation and also their children to become Japanese. As I think, uh, also in my book, I mentioned even for the second generation there's such a big uh, dilemma. How can they identify themselves, right? Just because J- Japanese-ness somehow excludes <laughs> their existence. Um, so um, so they feel excluded. They feel that they, um, not, they are not part of so-called Japanese nation. But at the same time, they are living in this society and, uh, and they are comfortably living in this society. Um, Ethno-nationalism does not, uh, you know, um, violently reject uh, foreign res- residents. Um, and um, in fact, uh, I think J- J- Japanese society actually works and has its uh, uh, has a very functional system. And, J- and the Japanese society is a very civ- civil. I'm talking about civility. You know, Japanese are polite. People uh, uh, care how they might kind of interfere in other pe- people's business and the people, you know, watch out, right? And, and people behave and people have a lot of uh, uh, kind of uh, um, um, awareness in the, in, in the public. Um, and and that's sort of, and also people have expectations for each other's behavior. And so to Japan, they're aware that there are a lot of rules and norms in Japan that they have to observe. And, um, and Japan is, you know, Japanese society is very cohesive in, 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 a, in a way. And for immigrants, that's actually very attractive. You know, to this sort of very orderly, functional, cohesive society, even though it does make a lot of demands, but at the same time, they're willing to, you know, follow that kind of expectation, to meet that kind of expectations. So we, it's a very complex, you know, story. Immigrants 
living in Japan, uh, they feel somehow they are still foreigners and uh, they can never be part of Jap- Japanese nation because of mm-hmm. nationalism. At the same time, they feel comfortably living there mm-hmm. <laughs> at right. a very practical level. And they mm-hmm. like Japanese society and the convenience of it, orderliness of it. And a lot of, um, um, you know, the, the systems do function. In Japan, yeah, it does seems to have a uh, this complex sense of belonging that are, you know, it's not simplify ethno-nationalism on the one hand and immigration uh, on the other, right. but it's a kind of um, you know there are some stories about the one of the immigrants went back to their their uh, you know country that, mm-hmm. uh, that they come from, mm-hmm. and they realized that there are more Japanese than I realized. You know, there's right. a story of somebody who actually took on that civility into their lifestyle and. You realize this strange sense of belonging that is not dictated by uh, ethno-nationalism, and right. we can still call it Japanese in some way. Right. So, in, in culturally, actually, that's uh, that's uh, I that's what I think um, is culturally a lot mm-hmm. of uh, immigrants have become very assimilated, <laughs> right? And because I think it's not because they are forced to assimilate in a sense because they feel somehow this makes sense to them. And I don't know whether it's because they don't think somehow they have the right to change Japan. Uh, So they are there to follow the rules and to kind of uh, respect Japanese rules. So I think nationalism probably works uh, in different ways, right? Okay, I I need to you know see what hosts actually expect me to do, right? You're more careful culturally, <laughs> and yeah. So in a sense, you know, a lot of immigrants become more assimilated than say some immigrant countries who uh, who used to have this kind of assimil- assimilation expectation. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I I can't imagine the number of interviews actually you conducted and surveys uh, for this research and. Um, I take it that uh, this this is your life work that took twenty years as a researcher. Yeah, um, I started. Yeah, exactly two thousand uh, around two thousand. Yeah, so right. But how did you pick these samples? Like they say, these individual narratives that you provided, they're so beautifully written, by the way, and it reads like almost like a novel. Um, and some of the stories are actually just amazing to look at. But how did you? Pick this story should go in instead of that story. Um, do you have any criteria for choosing these stories? Um, well, you know, I I will not say that I have a very systematic uh, criteria. I think every story is beautiful. That's one um, you know beautiful thing about um, um, a qualitative researcher. I, I do use number statistics, but. Uh, one the you know the the method I like the most is interviewing and also I, early on I did a lot of uh, participant observation, so yeah um so at very the 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 Chinese sample is oversampled and I and also there were stories that I came from like early uh, research. Um, Back then, when I was a graduate student, I had more time. I went to church and stayed there for two years and every every weekend and uh, all the dance halls and, you know, hanging out with my uh, immigrants. And uh, it was, um, yeah, so I knew uh, the Chinese community very well. But later on, when I wanted to, um, you know, be 
uh, be able to you know um, describe other populations. I I I I did use quite a number of research assistants because I'm not able to. I we usually want to talk to people in their native language, so I do. Have a lot of uh, research assistants who help me. I, I train them, and uh, you know, we we constantly discuss. And for example, I had a, a Korean uh, speaking research assistant who collects stories among the Koreans, and uh, and and also, of course, I also do some English um, uh, interviews. And so we have a different kinds of uh, stories, but the, the, I think every story is very compelling. That's the thing. And I have two. Under something very compelling story is uh, stories. It's very difficult to 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 choose from. So in a sense, I think um, you know impression is one thing, and also sometimes some people have very very um, representative quotes. You know to to um, to uh, um, to illustrate some of the points that I want to make in in the book. So what I you know of course I have over two hundred interviews and uh, I. All kinds of software tried to sort them out. I did um, use some some kind of qualitative data analysis software, and that different versions of them. That was a huge uh, uh, production. I, I did have some quote, uh, some code codes. For example, I want to understand how people talk about belongings and what kind of narratives people, um, you know. Um, have about belonging, so I, I do have that level of analysis, and then let's see go through. I mean, go through their stories um, to 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 uh, find some representative quotes. But so so all the interviews were transcribed. That was actually really useful uh, because then I and I read them again and again. You know, the, these uh, stories, I just read them. You know, all the people's stories, I read them again and again. And that's how I feel people somehow all, I can remember all their stories after a while. And they become part of, it's like a movie, right? These people live in my mind. And that's why when I try to, you know, write these different chapters, their stories just somehow they fit in here and fit in there. So, I think one thing about um, qualitative research or interviewing is that after a while, yeah, they become like almost like your community. <laughs> Everybody, some you know their story; they're a real living person. So, right, uh, yeah. I think one of the things I was as I was reading the stories of immigrants, and you you're right that it's almost reads like a novel, and you're sitting in these cafes in Tokyo. Or I have these vivid images where you actually sit down and talk with, with them in cafe or offices. But perhaps this is the questions um, that I want to ask you: Is this ethno-nationalism for Japanese people? Um, so average Japanese citizens would buy into this notion of ethno-nationalism, and I think this concept they somehow try to protect to create this sense of belonging, mm-hmm. and. In that state of, oh, we're the one nation of Japanese people, I think it's very difficult for them to understand the kind of displacement that immigrants would have to go through by moving from one country to another. Uh-huh. Um, but that sort of displacement needs to be understood before you, we create some kind of robust sense of belonging between, let's say, Japanese people, uh, that Japanese people who believe in ethnic nationalism 
and naturalized, naturalized citizens and immigrants to live in the same country. Um, do you have any suggestion to sort of combat ethno-nationalism or create this uh, different sense of belonging that actually includes Japanese people? I think you know, Japan is a Japanese people is not one you know singular uh, right. type, right? Like you, right. Yourself, you, know, you, you, you have left Japan and uh, and yeah, I'm a completely uh, uh, yeah, it's very different. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but there yeah. are a lot of people like you and like you know they do all kinds of things, and there are a lot mm-hmm. of Japanese immigrants, right? People who have left Japan have lived in different places and then went went out and came back. And uh, so I would not say the Japanese people as a singular, uh, a singular kind of uh, you know type. So uh, Japan has this potential because it is diverse. There are all kinds of diversity within so-called Japanese people. Yes, they do embrace this national nationalism, and uh, in a sense because it, they are educated to believe in that. And, so um, as a researcher, and what actually that concerns me the most, and also as, as a mother who, you know, uh, who, who raised a child in Japan, who my, my, my daughter was born and grew up in Japan. And I just felt the, actually the most effective way to cultivate uh, a more open-mindedness and and uh, a different kind of identity of themselves and of you know of Japan or uh, different um, uh, narratives of Japanese nation is through school. So education is very important, and right now Jap- Japanese school system is a very national and a very very nationalistic. And uh, you know, multiculturalism is uh, some some buzzword um, has been used. But if you look at a school curriculum, you look at how you know the school life is run. Multiculturalism or diversity is not <laughs> is not something that that's being practiced. So I think it's really um, you know, in order to kind of uh, uh, transform Japan in some ways and to make Japan more multicultural and to embrace more multi-ethnic kind of image is to 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 transform the school and to, it's from the, you know I think one thing that's very important is to include more foreigners in the in the in the uh, in school in the in the teaching. Mm. You know, I see. Yeah, in general, has uh, to include all kinds of people mm-hmm. as as teachers, and so um, and to make to make uh, um, uh, students as well as um, um, you know parents of the students realize, okay, you know, J- Japanese society has changed. Now we have these different kind of like, different kinds of people who spoke different different accents of Japanese and who have different kinds of backgrounds and they're all really uh, good, educated people. They are educating my children. So I think this is a very important message, but this message right now is uh, non-existent. There are a J- Japanese English teacher program. You have assistant teachers. They, you know, Some elementary schools, they, they come once a month to teach the same English words to children. So it's really not very effective. So in 
terms of institutional change, I think that's a very important, uh, you know, um, institution to change. Mm-hmm. Educational sector, definitely. Yeah. That's the exactly. most conservative area in Japanese um, state, basically. Yeah. Um, so I have a, one more question. Right. The, this book almost came perfect timing because, as you mentioned, we are experiencing a COVID-19, mm-hmm. which is affected all of us in t- 2020. And also we are entering 2021 uh-huh. with rather gloomy um, stories in in Europe, for instance, right. but do you see how this COVID nineteen affecting this global mobility and belonging? Does this introduce a, a, any new problem uh, that falls outside of our view of your book, or does the book actually give us something to go on with uh, f- to respond to this current situation? Right. Yeah, I mean, my book came out. I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> right. When, yeah. you know, Japan started locking down, and in fact, I didn't mm-hmm. get physical copies of my book for a long time. Wow. Shipping it, and and also sometimes it's kind of weird when the mobility was not possible, and I'm talking about about mobility. <laughs> My book actually, in the in a sense, kind of uh, you know continues the story into even COVID time. At, at the same time, uh, you know the part of this you know the immigrant story that is not in my book was also kind of uh, uh, continued. So I will I will first talk about the kind of continuous story. My book is mostly about people who have settled in Japan. I mean because I wanted to um, talk about those more you know settled. Immigrants and how they felt they could belong to the to the Japanese nation. So that was actually uh, the the kind of um, I'm sorry I didn't get back to your methodological question. So that was the the criteria. It was one of the criteria I used for choosing my my sample. Uh, so those people, especially people who were employed, already settled. I think they I mean they, their life has not changed. They did not go back to Japan, China. <laughs> Some of them, you know, they they use their channels, try to bring back like masks and stuff and uh, support um, the organizations, institution. In fact, Waseda also got a donation from from some former students who brought masks uh, to our faculty. So they felt they were part of the the society, and I, I did a survey actually um, of uh, you know uh, corporate employees, foreign corporate employees. Um, and uh, almost nobody lost jobs. So I, I, I got a 600 uh, samples, um, and they were more or less still, you know, doing what they were doing. And of course, as other Japanese uh, employees, their their work patterns changed, but they're still doing the same kind of uh, things, right? In the home and etc. And uh, and also, I think this is a first time actually I realized Japanese government wanted to include foreign residents and did have this more inclusive framework. So in fact, you know, um, when Japanese government decided to hand out this uh, 100,000 yen to every resident, every single resident, foreign or not, even student or even, uh, you know, other, uh, you know, even, uh, um, you know, as long as you have a residency in Japan, you receive it. So that actually, I think, is very inclusive. Um, so, so Japanese government recognized that you know foreign residents are a part of Japanese society. We need to take responsibility. I mean, on, this, uh, on, on the other hand, though, the book the, the book 
uh, does not include the technical interns and the people who were, you know, in a sense, not allowed to settle permanently. Um, and, uh, and those were also the people that actually really suffered during the COVID. And many people, um, many technical interns um, lost jobs, lost employment. And um, they could not go back home, or they their um, uh, contract terminated. They could not go back home. At the same time, they could not find new jobs. There are a lot of problems with those uh, people, and also undocumented migrants, irregular migrants. They're also excluded for any kind of Japanese uh, government programs. So, I was more precarious population. That unfortunately, I was not able to include them in this particular book because the book was unsettled migrants. Those are also the most precarious people. So what actually COVID has brought out is the, the level of precarity. So it started with a precarious situation and it just became aggravated. But, you know, interestingly, um, some, uh, when the COVID started, some of students went back to back home, uh, including many Chinese students that the parents are called home. And then they, this, this semester, when they, uh, now they could get the student visas and then they're coming back. And I, I asked, why are you coming back? And they said, oh, because I want to look for jobs here. <laughs> Yeah, it's, see this as a temporary pause. It's not right. like the long-term mobility. Mm-hmm. It just seems there's a l- bigger movement behind this, like a temporary rupture that we tend to focus. But there is much bigger, bigger narrative taking place. Yeah, I think that uh, you know this uh, country is and uh, moving toward a more kind of uh, you know toward this immigrant uh, mm-hmm. society, and uh, and and because demographic. Um, structure is not going to mm-hmm. change. So um, this yeah. uh, COVID is a I temporary. see. Yeah. Well, since uh, we approach the end of the interview, I'd like to ask you about your plans for the future. So mm-hmm. since we've been talking about future already, uh, is this something that you're working on right now or is are there any other uh, projects that are actually uh, forthcoming or ongoing? Um, I am doing some um, projects, um, of course, all related to migration. Uh, I, yeah, I, first of all, I try to, you know, with the COVID, I try to understand a bit more of some, for example, immigrant entrepreneurship, like Nepali restaurateurs, how they deal with the situation. And at the same time, I've proposed, uh, I've done a grant proposal. I hope I will have the funding. I want to see, you know, the student mobilities, international student mobilities into Japan and into, um, say, Germany, and how people make decisions to go where and why they want to study, say, science, uh, you know, in in Germany, but at the same time, they want to study, say, uh, you know, uh, humanities in Japan. You know, you actually see a very big difference. A lot of STEM students in Germany, very few are in Japan. So for me, that's a puzzle. Wow. That's very fascinating project, and and I'm glad to hear that you'll be coming to Europe more often in the future, uh, since I'm based in Europe. So good luck on the forthcoming projects. Uh, thank you so much for talk, talking to us about your book and your incredible analysis of immigration in Japan, Gracia. 
And thank yeah. you, everyone. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone. This was a discussion with Gracia Liu Fader, who is the author of Immigrant Japan, Mobility and Belonging in an Ethno-Nationalist Society. See you next time.